0: Hello, and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Benjamin Ensel. In today's episode, we're asking, how do we make financial services LGBTQ inclusive? While we may naturally think of the push for equality to be an area such as marriage, housing, employment, access to services, all of these areas and more are actually linked back to financial services, particularly banking and insurance. So to mark this year's Pride Month, but also hopefully to create a conversation relevant at any time, we're asking... What issues have the LGBTQ community faced and what do they continue to face when it comes to financial services? What solutions are being found and what could the future hold? We'll discuss all this and more in today's show. But first, a brief word from our sponsors.
1: Full Circle is the customer lifecycle intelligence platform that's helping companies in financially regulated industries do better business faster. Financial institutions are under pressure on multiple fronts. Customers are demanding better experiences, competitors are making a grab for market share, regulatory scrutiny is fiercer than ever, and the cost to acquire and serve is high. Full Circle's new white paper explores how customer lifecycle intelligence can help companies find the right customers, accelerate onboarding, and keep them for life. Download it from the link in the podcast description.
0: Let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on LGBTQ financial services. First off, I am joined by my colleague, Charlotte Faraday, Product Director at 11FS. Welcome, Charlotte. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, too. Can you give our audience a very quick overview of your role here at 11FS and your interest in this subject?
2: Hello. Yes, I'm Charlotte. I'm a Product Director at 11FS, so I head up our product tribe, um, but more relevant to today, my interest in inclusive design has uh, spans a lot of different varieties of inclusion and inclusive design, everything from how do we design for mental well-being, how do we design for belonging, how do we design for physical and cognitive needs, so that we can kind of consider inclusion in a very holistic sense. Welcome.
0: We also have a FinTech Insider debut for David Orton, who is co-host of the Queer Money podcast, Welcome, David. What can you tell us about uh, your podcast?
3: First of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I do have a background in product design on the tech side of financial services and I've uh, worked in financial services for over 20 years. Um, but it was uh, once my husband and I started to recognize a gap in the services for LGBT folks that we decided to go out on our own and start our own education business around helping the LGBT community. And the podcast is really our key way of kind of what we say, providing personal finance with a rainbow twist, Uh, taking the 20% of life that is affected by who we are, how we choose to live, who we choose to love, uh, and how that affects the 80% of the transactional aspects of money throughout the rest of our lives.
0: Fantastic. Welcome. I love the uh, rainbow twist. Um, We also have Steve Wardlaw, chairman of Emerald Life. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Uh, What can you tell our listeners about Emerald Life and and your background?
4: (laughs) Yeah, sure. So so a bit like David, we founded um, Emerald Life about five, six years ago. And in the dim and extremely distant past, I was much more a kind of a, as was called, gay and lesbian activist, you know, running into uh, embassies, lying on the floor, all that kind of stuff, and then got slightly purloined by a short, became a 25-year career career doing oil and gas law in various cities around the world, but wanted to come back to doing something that was much more back to the roots, which was understanding that while I think the media and mainstream focus a lot on uh, some bigger issues about equality, sometimes uh, for members of the LGBTQ plus community, it's the day-to-day stuff that sometimes needs a bit of a tweak, a bit of a change. Not much, but we thought that insurance financial services, it's not a product people love. And if they can decide not to protect themselves, look after themselves because they don't like an advert, don't like customer experience, don't like a product, they'll choose to do so. And as a protection industry, I thought we just had to be better at protection. So that's why we started Emerald Life.
0: Fantastic. Welcome. And last but not least, we are joined by Kate Anthony, Chief Executive Officer of Euphoria. Welcome, Kate. Can you give uh, your audience an introduction to you and to Euphoria, please?
1: Sure, sure. My name is Kate Anthony. Uh, I am a transgender woman and the founder of Euphoria. We create software for transgender people, which includes a fintech application called Bliss.
0: Fantastic, thank you. Okay, well, where I'd love to start is um, by by diving in um, to start with a question about: well, what are some of the, the the issues that face the LGBTQ community? So for listeners who've perhaps not really thought about this before, you might think, well, you know, surely the needs of people in the community are just the same as everyone else. You know, the financial needs are just the same. Really, you know, what, what's the big deal? You know, why have a podcast on this at all? Um, perhaps I could come to, to maybe you, David, first, and, and, and then we'll go around a little bit. What are some of the issues that are different and some of the challenges that, that people face? So for listeners who've maybe not really thought about this and just thought, well, is there a problem? What are some of the sorts of problems that, that people run into in banking or insurance and, and so on?
3: Certainly. Um, so uh, as I mentioned in the kind of the introduction, we believe that, there, uh, that there's an 80% of, of financial services or finance money that is kind of transactional and is very much the same. A credit card swipes the same for me as it does for everyone else. And me paying a bill online is the same for me as it is at anyone else but it's the, the kind of the personal side, who I am and who I choose to love and the way I've chosen to live my life that has a deeper impact on how I relate to money, my relationship with money, who I am and my money story. So it may be my background, it may be my race, it may be my sexual orientation or gender identity that kind of really then helps me see where I have services and needs, or maybe where my services and needs are not necessarily being met. And unfortunately, we do still have a financial services industry that is very what we like to refer to as pale, male, and stale. (laughs) It really is an industry that is predominantly run by straight white men. And these services have historically for centuries been created for and used to serve men. And then more recently, I would say probably over the last 20 years, we have seen an inclusion of women into that. And what we're still finding is that the that in for many, most of the most part financial services companies are have struggling to find a way to connect to that personal side of personal finance, so that they can serve the unique needs of all of their customers, but especially in this case, LGBT folks who have historically have had things such as uh, a, a a gender identity, sexual orientation, pay gap. So we earn less. Well, how does that affect our ability to get ahead financially, to invest, to, uh, to work in organizations or in companies where we have access to retirement planning or to the tools and services that actually make our financial lives simpler? So- I I do think that's potentially a whole nother podcast, John. Actually, (laughs) I actually have created a whole podcast along that. But we talk about the legacy experiences of LGBT folks and how just simple things such as not having familial support when you move out on your own that can have a lasting impact on your finances Mm -hmm. or as a same-sex couple, you paying for your wedding versus having your parents pay for a portion or all of that.
0: I'd love to hear, you know, more about some of the sort of barriers that, that, that people have faced, you know, either historically or, or, or still today. Um, you know, Kate, I don't know if you've got a, a perspective on some of the sort of historic barriers that have affected LGBTQ people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think from my vantage point, it's it's you don't really need to look far back into the historical record to understand why financial services are really tough for a soul like mine. So... Pretty much everything I'm going to say is underpinned by one primary concern, which is discrimination. Um, I have walked into banks and been denied loans based on my appearance. Uh, I don't possess a literally single debit or
0: just account. just your appearance, nothing else.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 enough to get you hushed out the door, or to have slurs thrown at you, or uh, you yeah, know, I don't have a, a debit card or a credit card with my name on it, um, so that can cause some problems. We can look at like more like intensive kind of issues, like, you know, a KYC process that works for someone who has a legal name incongruence. So if you're in the process of updating it, you may have a name that's different than what's uh, appearing on ID. But all that comes back to is that in this day and age, people look at someone like me and they decide that we are unworthy of financial services. Um, And that's the biggest thing that haunts the transgender community. Um, specifically in present time.
3: I'll throw out there, just kind of ta- tacking on to what Kate just said, John and I just partnered with The Montley Fool and we did a study um, where we interviewed two, over 2,000 LGBT Americans and 48% of the LGBT population said that they have experienced some form of discrimination by financial services. And that was actually 67% of trans folks. And this really kind of punctuates what Kate is saying here. And what folks said in that study was 44% of folks said that that discrimination in some part has inhibited their ability to achieve of a level of financial success or financial sustainability that they think that they would have otherwise. And so the discrimination is, is, a, is a key part in preventing us from actually having a financially sustainable life, right? It's not getting ahead financially, but some people, a lot of folks in the queer community are falling behind because they just don't have access to these kinds of tools that many folks take for granted. Steve,
0: mm-hmm. Steve have you seen the same? Sort of yeah, patterns? we have. And I,
4: there's, there's definitely, going on from, from Kate and David's point, there's, there's a couple of things about how communities, particularly minority communities, tend to work. So we've also done some data, particularly transgender. Customers get picked up on, you know, when you talk about fintech, some great fintech uh, for call centers like voice recognition systems where you're trying to detect fraud or stress in someone 's voice will actually pick up for instance, if the voice of the person calling doesn't in the in the system's mind match the gender of the person who's calling i 've got a, a transgender friend who who can't get through a call center because the machine will not recognize her um, and what happens is particularly in communities, why we are underserved i think and underrepresented is you've got two things: a community a lot of community outreach and how you develop a brand in the community is by word of mouth. And that could be positive and negative. And where you hear all these surveys about 66% of people who have bad experiences, particularly in the trans community, it, it, it permeates. So when we did some studies, uh, if you're in the LGBT community, you're twice as likely to have no insurance at all. And some of the respondents when we spoke to them were quite aggressive about how much they hated the insurance sector because of historical demerits, particularly around life insurance and um, the AIDS crisis. And I also think it's very difficult for an industry, financial services generally, as David was saying, if your decision-making body and your stakeholders are largely white heterosexual men, Mm. it's very difficult to design products that are truly diverse and in lots of cases we've we've had off the record chats with big directors and big insurers who are nervous about it because they don't have the background to check they're either doing something amazingly constructive or they're gonna have egg on their face as soon as they launch a product because something is wrong with it and they're not taking stakeholder opinion into account. So the industry is it's talking about stuff. Is it moving or changing? No. And HIV, people living with HIV and I think the trans community are at the, the, the real cutting edge of of still in your face discrimination.
2: Yeah, there's a couple of really interesting things in there. One is, and I think this is probably the crux of it, Steve, you you described the community as being underrepresented. And I think actually it's, that term gets used a lot, but actually you're not underrepresented, you're excluded. It's, it's kind of semi-intentional. It's, I think it's, there aren't really enough excuses anymore for why it's just, it's underrepresented. It sounds like it's an accident. Mm, So mm. I think that's one thing, but also I think going back to that piece around, it's hard for the big organizations to do this well because they don't have the representation internally. All of the major banks say that they use customer centered design and that they speak to customers before they launch any new product, they'll go out and they'll do lots of research. They'll understand customer needs. Benjamin would probably argue that they could do it better, but they, they are doing that process But the problem is they're speaking to people who look like them and actually by taking a more inclusive approach to the design process and speaking to a much broader range of voices, people who have very different needs, very different lived experiences can only improve those products, but they haven't made that step yet. So they've acknowledged that there's a bit of a problem and that they know that they're not being representative But they haven't made the practical step of, okay, well, let's either build a community of people we can talk to regularly or just be more active in our research and making sure that we are seeking out those really representative voices. And I think that's that's kind of one of the things that's really standing in the way that that means that they keep getting small things wrong that then have a big impact
4: I think that's right. Just jumping. jump in, I think that's right. We have a big um, Biba, the British Insurance Brokers Association, has a big annual conference every May. And even people who are very supportive of our work will introduce me as, this is Steve, the gay insurer. And you're like, unless we're actually having sex, I'm just an insurer. So it's, you know, but that, to give you an they're like, look, we've got, you know, it's almost like we've got, we've got one. Here's one. Here's one. And you're like, the fact that it's still noticeable and I trail around and he goes, they're Steve. And they're like, oh yeah, like that kind of thing. It shouldn't be that. I can't, I'm, <laughs> I'm acting for Emerald Life. I'm not acting for AXA, Aviva, Direct Line, all this kind of stuff. And we talk to people. We're not, we're not secretive about what we do, but they seem to, you know, once we do the talking and they feel better about themselves because they've had their coffee with us, nothing seems to change. So I think you're right. At some stage, when you've asked people to change their views for a year, they could be working on it. If you've, nothing has changed in six years, there might be something else going on.
0: So one last quick question on this before before we move on to sort of ha- how to start addressing some of these challenges. Where where have we seen some progress? Because, you know, obviously there are there are parts of the world where people are being persecuted and there are parts of the world where there has been some progress. Um, have we seen some useful progress in, you know, the United States, in some of the European countries? Um, have you seen things get better at all in the last 15, 20 years?
1: Yeah, I mean, just... Kind of speaking from that, you know, unique lens of uh, the trans experience and, you know, particularly here stateside, uh, we are seeing some improvements. Uh, They're marginal, but they're improvements nonetheless. Uh, So we're seeing a number of card issuers uh, get more comfortable with allowing people to put their true name on a debit card. Uh, That's huge. Uh, There are so many components of why that enhances someone's personal safety and agency. And, you know, my hope is that every bank just copies that. Um, because that would certainly be a step forward. And you know, even though it may not be a tectonic shift, kind of the other side of it is that you know organizations are having these types of conversations, uh, perhaps not at the length or at the volume that's required, but even when we see you know pride celebrations, you know you can tell those are employee ERG groups that are helping to stir the pot on what it actually means to be inclusive um, and not just kind of putting the colors up, you know when it's uh, most advantageous. So, Um, I think we are seeing just very incremental progress, and that's hard to hedge on as something, you know, as an indicator that's going to get better in the long haul. But, you know, it does show that we're moving forward and not backwards, uh, thankfully.
0: So, Charlotte, can I pick up on what you were talking about, about sort of inclusive design and so on? Can you sort of tell us a little bit more about that, a little bit more about how does that look in practice? What can... So for financial services companies listening to this, whether they're, you know, fintechs or whether they're more established organisations, what can and should they be doing, you know, beyond just saying, hi, Steve, uh, <laughs> what, 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 what should companies be doing?
2: I think there's a range of things. And actually, one of the things about inclusive design that makes it so inclusive is that there's a lot of things that you can do that Don't cost companies any money, won't take any time. They're tiny, tiny changes that are really easy to um, make happen. Some of the other things that have more impact obviously take take more effort. Um, The biggest single thing I think that you can do that we've already touched on is to speak to a broader range of people and and not just um, send out a survey and listen to the results, but actually involve a broader range of people in your research. I think there's a really interesting thing of everybody's identity is made up of multiple layers and and they are combined of a million things in different combinations. So race, gender, sexual orientation, mental health, literacy, um, digital competence. There's like a whole... A, a list that is endless, I'll, and I, I'm, I'm going to stop there before I kind of trail off into just listing things. But everybody's <laughs> identity is made up of, of a mixture of those things, and those things are um, more or less important depending on the context you're in. So your, your, the, your primary identity can shift in different contexts, or the thing that you are being excluded for, you can be excluded for more than one thing at any given time. So I think understanding, and for companies who want to get better at this, understanding who they need to speak to in order to design the right services for the future. What's the right combination of people, I suppose, so that they get a really broad range and they're not just speaking to one person and saying, okay, well, we've ticked the gate box. We can move on from that. We just need to find Mm. one person of colour and somebody who, I don't know, English isn't their first language. And then we've done our diverse research. So you need to work out Who are the right people for you to speak to and engage with and involve in your research? And then actually what you need to do is you need to listen to them. And I think, so on that kind of sense of there are different levels of things to do, at the, I guess, core level, you can design products and services that are actually for those people that represent their real needs. And that comes down to things like, um, for a long time, and I don't know if this is still true, but until relatively recently, I think... Uh, I can't remember the exact stat, but something like 70% of gay couples had difficulties getting a mortgage. And if you could get a mortgage, you would be charged more for it. So there's that kind of, um, you're being penalised for your sexual orientation Mm -hmm. for no reason, because actually, when you look at the data, those people are also less likely to default on their mortgages. So there's no There's no risk reason for it. There's no commercial reason for it. It's just discriminatory. So designing products that actually support people's real needs is is kind of core to it. I think once you've got that kind of product shape, and that might be, to Kate's point, around, okay, I'm going to launch a new bank account. I'm going to let people put what they want on their card. I have to do KYC. I'm going to do that rigorously, but that doesn't mean it has to be the same thing that's on their card. It might mean that... You don't ask somebody as default what if they're opening a joint account what their wife's name is. It's like it's this. There's little things within the interface that are really easy to do and easy to do well. But if you don't do them, the the impact of that is much greater. I think on the sort of the smaller end of the spectrum, there's there's kind of really easy things that people can do. People, as in businesses, around making sure that the information we're asking people for be clear about why we need it. Do we actually need it? Only ask them for things that we need. Most financial services products are essentially a form. So let's get really good at making inclusive forms so that we are being clear about what it's for, what we need and what we're going to use it for. And I think that kind of, if you start from both ends, do the research at this end and look after the tiny, tiny details at this end, then hopefully We will get to a point where we have much more inclusive products. Do we think
0: that's going to be done more by new companies or or sort of progressive companies that deliberately set out to serve the LGBTQ community better, or do we think we'll start seeing established companies growing out? I mean, Steve, I mean, you obviously have set out set out to, to, to to try and fix this. Do you think? Do you think that's the way it's going to end up being done around the world as we see companies that are actually good at listening to their customers doing this and specialist companies setting up? Or do we think mainstream companies will get there in the way that Charlotte's describing?
4: My dream would be to be put out of business by the big insurers in the UK and worldwide changing changing what they've done. Um, We spent a lot of time in about 2015, 2016, seeing them all and... There's something called like the, I don't hierarchy of prejudice, if you like, and you can explain a particular issue to an insurer. And we had a point where we said we'd like this wording changed. We think this this is almost homophobic in how it's written because you're ignoring a particular case. If I was heterosexual, I'd be covered. If I was homosexual, I wouldn't be covered. You know. And they were like, oh yeah, this is this is yeah, that's pretty homophobic. The issue is, he said a system and wording change for our company is about 150 to £200,000 pounds to do. So we might be able to put it in perhaps the next time we do a system change. And I was like, oh, okay, no problem. Um, so if this wording was outright racist, what would you be doing? He said, oh, Jesus, we change it immediately. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm done here, aren't I then? Because you, what you've done is made very clear that we make a lot of good, good gestures and very nice signals to people. But when it comes down to it, and I think there isn't, How big insurers might change, and big banks as well, is have a proper, not a nominal, not a person who pops in for the LGBT cheese and wine, but a proper someone on the board whose job it is to drive a transformational change on the understanding that's a very big budget and probably a 10 to 15-year process. And you won't be surprised to know that's probably not on the board agendas of many of the big insurers and banks currently.
3: Yeah, I I think that... um... John and I have some personal experience with this. Um, John and I used to work for Charles Schwab. Charles Schwab is the second largest brokerage firm and bank in the United States and have literally trillions of dollars in assets under management. We had financial advisors coming to us saying, I am a gay man. I am a lesbian woman. I work with people in the queer community, and I am tired of going out and sharing material from our company that shows a straight white couple with their golden retriever on the beach. And for <laughs> several years, John and I, as leaders of the employee, LGBT employee resource group across the company, we're going to our diversity inclusion group. We're going to our marketing team. We're going to our executives and saying, our company can do better By not only the current customers, but we can win more customers if we would just share some imagery or create collateral that is specific for these people working in this community. We have it for folks who are working with Chinese speaking individuals, we have it for advisors who are are working with women who are the 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 decision makers why can we not have it for our community and after 2 years we gave up because we kept on hearing no as part of the reason why we left the industry but uh to speaking to what steve said john and i refer to this as cascading homophobia and really what happens is there's a there's a, a an upward push from not only lgbt folks but also Uh, allies, um, individuals who truly do want to be supportive, who do want to help move things forward in these large organizations. But at some point, the decision maker has to answer to somebody who they think is either outright homophobic or has um, in some ways insinuated that they might not be receptive to LGBT material or an LGBT person. And at that point, that ally or that decision-maker, basically the cascading homophobia basically makes them say, okay, we're not going to move forward with this project. That could be beneficial to the LGBT community. We're not going to make this change to our platform or to the wording just because it's, it's harder for me to ask somebody above me to say yes than it is for me to say no to somebody below me. It's easier for me to just pass that discrimination on down the line. And that your original question was do, I think we're, do we think we're going to see this happening from big firms or from innovators in the space? And I think that, I personally think that it's going to take the innovative space, the smaller companies, to show how profitable and powerful this change can be to make the heads of the top executives of some of these organizations actually turn and say, we're either going to copy that or we're going to acquire that company because this is worthwhile for our business to do.
0: It's terrible hearing you saying some of that in 2022. You know, if we'd had this conversation 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It wouldn't have surprised me. It's horrendous, particularly this this sense you have that people are taking decisions on the basis that the person above them might be homophobic or or, or whatever, that's, that's shocking. Um. Kate, I want to bring you back in on, you, you were talking really interestingly about sort of name changes and the particular challenges there. Um, have you seen any movement from credit agencies? Because um, that presumably must be particularly difficult for, for, for transgender people. Um, is, is that correct? Is, have you seen any sign of sort of progress there?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, with kind of the the big three out here, um, there is a way to get your name updated in their records. Uh, So it can be done. Uh, Part of my work is kind of uh, indexing, you know, how to get through transition. And that is one of the latest and greatest resources we added. Um, It's challenging because it's not something you ever think about. Uh, It's not particularly exciting and it's not particularly sexy in terms of an afternoon activity. Um, But, you know, should you have the wherewithal to be able to kind of go through, you know, dig into like their forms and like, you know, find some blog post from five years ago that you know had the audacity to utter the word transgender. um, You can find the paperwork to get it done. So yes, it's possible, yes, that's an improvement, but kind of the last like, you know, link in that chain is going to be just making that much more easier. You know, I think from a product design perspective, like Charlotte was speaking to, you know, that's one of those really obvious areas of, you know, let's just make this part of the interface. You know, let's make this as easy as clicking this and being able to upload a court-ordered name change. Um, that's, a, that's a two-click problem that can be solved by a clever engineer, and that's kind of the last piece of that. But mechanically speaking, we're almost all the way there, and that's a really positive development, at least out here in the States. I can't really speak to the UK on that one.
0: Fantastic. Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause here, and we will be back very shortly.
3: How will WebTree unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11FS.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready.
0: Okay, so let's take a look at uh, what the future might hold and what we hope the future could be like. And I want to start by building on the point you were making, David, about the the, the lack of representation of the LGBTQ community in in the sort of graphic materials, you know, the pictures that that, that companies show. Um, you know, there's a bit of me that's thinking, you know, why is that so hard, you know, given the vast amounts of marketing that the industry seems to produce? Um, are there any companies that are good at it? I mean, I, I I'm look, are there any positive examples that we can point to of companies in the industry that are that are making people feel a bit more included? Because, you know, Charlotte's made that point that this is really exclusion. Are there any good examples of who's starting to get it right and starting to make people feel a bit more included?
3: Um, I'll start by sharing a couple. I mean, I think we know that uh, that both Mass Mutual and Prudential, who are insurers here in the United States, um, kind of led the game in the mid20 uh, teens uh, in kind of going out and trying to understand the needs of the LGBT community by actually surveying. And then they did use that to that material to not only create, content but also to create imagery uh, you know mass mutual on their website um, had a, a a couple a lesbian couple where one of the women was actually lay her head was laying on the other woman's lap right so you can have two women on a couch and someone could insinuate that that was a lesbian couple but to actually show in a in a, in a somewhat um, uh, romantic or, uh, or intimate way is actually kind of lending the, um, we're not scared of showing this kind of imagery. I think that they are doing a good job. Um, a while back, Wells Fargo had a commercial with a lesbian couple who were excited, and it was the morning that they were going to go adopt their daughter. And that kind of, literally, that that was the commercial that made me cry and say, this is what our financial services community needs to be seeing and doing. And then more recently, Capital One, a large bank and credit provider here in the United States, has done a, a great job with at the micro level, they provide education. And when they do provide that education, oftentimes they are using inclusive imagery and individuals from within their organization as providers of that education. So you may see a trans woman or trans man doing a presentation to a small group of individuals inside of one of their locations, or the invitation to come to some education may be of a gay couple with their child. And so it's those that's the kind of the, the micro steps that are starting we're starting to see happen. but as you did point out, this is a this is a uh, an industry that literally produces millions mm. of images on an annual basis. If even just the one to three percent of those were of representing individuals in the LGBT community, I think we m- people, we would see a sea change because people would be so surprised at how much this is being, quote unquote, pushed in their face. That's what they would be saying, but it would actually be true representation of our community.
1: It's, it's really interesting because, like, you know, I completely agree with you as it relates to the, you know, LGB, you know, part, uh, you know, and as a bisexual woman, like, when I see two women, you know, part of a uh, banking ad, like, you know, it just makes my heart glow. Um, you know, it's a still very fun feeling. But interestingly enough, on the other side, when it comes to being transgender, I actually don't have any qualms about representation, because what does a transgender person look like? Just men and women. So when I see just women in advertisements, that's who I aspirationally look up to. I mean, that's kind of the point of the ad. And so, you know, it's not, it's not saying that, you know, everything's going well on that front. I just thought it was a really interesting juxtaposition and thinking about our relative struggles and just being like, huh, I've never thought about that as that relates to my component of identity, uh, that is being a transgender woman. So just, just wanted to pepper
4: that in. Well, we, we struggled a lot because the other thing we talk about a lot is in the community, there's a lot more than a, than people who happen to be a couple. We maybe aspire to it, maybe do, or maybe don't. It's quite difficult to put an LGBT image up that isn't a same-sex couple. It's quite difficult to make it very obvious that you talk about. And we did struggle, we've got a trans advisory group, on exactly imagery of someone. We couldn't come to a conclusion, the trans advisory group couldn't come to a conclusion on what trans imagery would be like. And then sometimes we feel bad because a lot of it is couples and a lot of the communities tend to be single. So how do you represent a single man who happens to be gay without... (laughs) <laughs> you know, a rap of Donna Summer albums in the background or something like that. You can't do it. You can't do it without doing a cliche. But I actually, I actually think there are ways of looking more subtle and more inclusive. We've ended up with imagery when we, when we put stuff on websites of having like, three, like a fan of three images, because then you tell more, a bit more of a story rather than just a single image. Um, but to your point about change, I think, I think the, what we've done here has not been great. I think the big banks and insurers have picked up some of the low-hanging fruit, so they're very good now at imagery. The best uh, LGBT and queer imagery, I'd say, is Transport for London. I appreciate they're not a bank, but they're, they're really good at this stuff. Um, so they've managed the imagery very well. And I think they also have very well-resourced LGBT employee groups. Where I think there's a, a lack about going back, right back to Charlotte's point, about kind of stakeholder inclusion is I don't think those LGBT uh, employee groups get lots and lots of money to have big events and have big floats of pride and things like that, but they're not really empowered to drive change within the organisation they're empowered. It's, it's, it's really a nice employee benefit if you're LGBT. And I'm what I notice in insurers now is a lot of the, funny enough, the LGBT uh, employee groups in insurance are becoming a bit more active and a bit more dynamic and a bit more of advocates to try and change their organisation. So I won't mention them, but they were told, one group was told, you have lots and lots of money, but do not try and make our policies more trans-inclusive, as in stop going on about it. Um, and there was a bit of a fracas with with a a very well-known insurance company. So that's the point. If you, you can't say we want stakeholder engagement when you have a very committed, open group that you won't engage with. But the, sadly, the answer's there. You have a very open, committed group who'd like to engage.
2: I think there's a really interesting and very odd separation within some large organisations. So as you say, they've got these really engaged um, employee community groups over here who are... Um, working on the experience of working in that organization. So they're working on their internal policies, internal ways of working, all of that kind of stuff, which is super important. And then on the other side, you've got possibly a CSR team, some kind of small unfunded Mm. team whose remit it is to make sure that, oh, let's be seen to be sustainable. Let's be seen to be inclusive. And those two groups aren't, often coming together because they've got very different agendas. I mean, they haven't, but the way it's been organized by the organizations. So you end up with one team working on kind of how do we make this place better for us to work in? Totally different team thinking about how do we make this at least superficially, but actually being less cynical, how do we make this work better for our customers? And actually, it's really rare to find organizations where those two groups of people come together and work together to uh, use the kind of lived experience of the workforce to design better products for the users. And I, th- I don't really understand why that disconnect happens, but I've seen it in so many different organisations. I find it very odd.
0: It's top-down versus bottom-up, isn't it? There's a, there's an element of sort of top-down virtue signalling going on that doesn't necessarily match the bottom-up grassroots activ- activism from people who have who, who are living it every day.
2: But that doesn't make sense commercially. Because if you've got you've you've got a well-funded employee group, and you have a deeply unfunded group who are trying to actually change your products to make them better for your customers, which would bring you more customers and make you more money. It it, it, just, it, makes, it, no sense it makes no sense commercially. I mean,
0: because we, we, we haven't really talked about this, but then, uh, I don't know if I can use the term the pink pound. But you know, <laughs> there is a lot of money <laughs> in this community, right? There are plenty of very wealthy people who are being very poorly served, and it doesn't make much sense that more big companies aren't saying, hang on a minute, there's a really good opportunity here to serve these excluded, underrepresented customers better.
3: I think that there's a, there's a tendency in the industry, and I think that this is also corporate-wide. I mean, all, all major corporations tend to focus on the quick proof of return on investment, mm. right? I want to, we're going to use spend $25,000. We're going to create this campaign. Well, it didn't return... Two, three, four, ten 10 times in the first quarter. So we're going to give up on that. And the reality is, is that it's kind of like the dating process, right? You know, when, when we meet someone, we don't immediately ask them to move in with us or to spend the rest of our lives with us. There has to be a courtship time period, especially if there has been the hesitancy to work with the community, right? If historically our community feels like we've been either discriminated against or just excluded, then I think that these corporations need to take a bit of time to think about how do we properly engage with, and the point you're kind of getting at, Charlotte, here is that the decision makers a lot of times are not the individuals who are living these experiences or even being asked by they're, they're not, the decision makers are not asking these individuals. So they don't have, it, it, it's almost as if these employee resource groups that are there to help the business improve are also done for show. You know, some of them have absolutely no teeth. They are given two hundred and fifty dollars or two hundred and fifty pounds a year by a corporation that's making billions of dollars, and so they're really not there. They're there to check a box. They're there to check the box that allows them to get a one hundred on the HRC Equality Index.
0: We need to wrap up our conversation, much as I'm. I'm loving it. This is we're, we're getting some really good stuff. Um, Last quick question um, for each of you very briefly. What would be your advice to any fintech founders who are looking at this uh, opportunity and thinking of trying to do something to help? Um, I'm going to go with you, Steve, first, um, but I'd love to have a sort of quick bit of advice from each of you. What what would your advice be to somebody listening to this thinking, you
4: know, I could Yeah, absolutely. It's 100% authenticity, and it follows almost exactly on from what David's saying. Using a dating language again, you've got someone who's had some very bad relationships in the past and and, and it's going to take you a long time to bring them on board and that's going to, that's a process of kind of love bombing them, but also I think there is a not just the bad service has made people a bit awkward and hesitant there is a suspicion either that this is done as a as a show you know look we've discharged our obligation here's a here's a nice poster campaign. Or, as Charlotte was saying, it's not well thought out and some 22-year-old with an MBA has decided to try and capture the pink pound. And so you need to show the authenticity which is behind it. It's well thought out. The the money from the LGBT communities are now more savvy, certainly in the UK, than it was before. We want to see, when you say this is an offering for us, how you thought about it, who designed it, where it's come from, and what its intention is. That will allow – it's never been quick progress – But I think if you were a mold breaker, stick at it that way, and that's the way you'll gain community traction. Kate, quick thoughts?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, particularly for fintech founders, you know, I think the the biggest piece of advice I could give is is build a KYC process that accommodates transgender people. Uh, That sounds like really niche advice, but, you know, the way to think about it is that when you design from the hardest use case, everyone that isn't at that kind of maximal point is still going to benefit. So a process that can accommodate differences is going to be able to cast a much wider net in terms of new customers, you know, speaking of diversity and inclusion, even beyond, you know, the rainbow um, in this uh, particular conversation. So if you're a fintech founder, uh, focus on that. Um, If you have questions, uh, just hit me up. I'll teach you how to do it. You know, it's easy. We can all do it.
3: (laughs) Thank you, David. Yeah, I'll just—I uh, think it kind of echoes what both Steve and Kate have said: is really get to know who you're trying to serve, who are your true customers, and when you understand their true needs. This is one of the things I love about what Euphoria is doing—they they know the needs of the people that they're trying to serve. They're not—they're creating the box for that community instead of trying to push everyone else into an existing box, like many of the large organizations are doing. Um, and it and it is it is um, authenticity, right? It's more than just wrapping your product in a rainbow. It's more than just having a drag queen show up as your spokesperson. Yeah, those things are great. We, as a community, we have the allies. What we truly need are the in, within these organizations are now the advocates. We don't need another party. We don't need another parade. We need you to actually serve our true needs. And that's what we're, we're, I think that's where we're at. And I think that's why we are seeing the hesitancy is because companies aren't sure because they haven't done the work to understand those needs. And that there, I think there are examples in Euphoria and Daylight. These are organizations that truly are showing there is a way to discover the needs if you truly want to listen.
2: Charlotte? I think, so building on that, I think I've got two things that are kind of, I guess, more practical. One is build a small community of who you think your early adopters are going to be and speak to them endlessly and make sure that that, that pool of people is representative of the people that you're trying to attract. So I think one of the things that we've seen from successful fintechs is that if you if you have a really clear purpose and you have strong values, and that that purpose and those values align with those of your target customers, you're like 30% of the way they're already, then stick on top of that, a good KYC process, some jargonless copy, and some great imagery, and and you've got a winning proposition.
0: Fantastic. That wraps up today's discussion. This has been Really great. Thank you all so much for joining and sharing um, such useful insights. Um, where can people find out a little bit more about each of you and your companies? Uh, Charlotte, let's start with you.
2: Uh, you can find out about me on LinkedIn, or I will be writing a blog post actually about inclusive design for the 11FS website in the next week or so. So maybe keep an eye out for that as well. Okay. And Kate? Kate?
1: Yeah, you can visit our main site, uh, www.euphoria.lgbt. And for those with the fintech proclivity, I encourage you to check out bliss.lgbt as well.
3: And David? Um, my husband and I are the debt-free guys at debtfreeguys.com. And our podcast is queermoneypodcast.com. And we're under both of those on all the socials.
0: And
4: Steve?
3: Uh, business side is easy.
4: Emeraldlife.co.uk, uh, Twitter handler, I'm still quite active, is at WardlawSteve for my weekend to raise against the mainstream media and their anti-trans bias.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. And I'm Benjamin Ensor and you can find me on LinkedIn or at 11fs.com. So thank you all very much uh, for listening. If you like what you've heard, uh, subscribe to our podcast. Uh, Don't forget to leave us a review or tell us what uh, you'd like to hear us cover in future episodes. So if you want to join the conversation, uh, find us on social media, search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening. Thank you to my fantastic panelists. Um,
4: Have a great day, everyone, and goodbye.